mindfulness mode. So when you think about even just one blueberry and how many people were involved in that blueberry that you're eating, it's just amazing. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness here on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. Hey, Mindful Tribe, I am really looking forward to today's interview, and I'm with a person who is an intuitive, and she's got so many abilities, and uh, I, I think it's going to be fascinating because her list of topics that we can talk about is so varied and fascinating, and I know that she works with a lot of people and helps a lot of people through their challenges, through mindset. I know that victimhood is something that she helps people with if they feel that they're a victim and they want to get out of that space, which I think if if you're feeling like a victim, you probably want to get out of that space. I have Lynn Rivers with me today. Hey, Lynn, are you in mindfulness mode today? Oh, always. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Always. Lynn, it's so great to have you on the show. What does mindfulness mean to you, Lynn? Mindfulness means to me just honestly being present in every aspect of your life. The moment you wake up, stepping out of bed, how you move through your day, the things you witness, the the things that you take in, everything, just being really present to it and accessing all of that information that it's that's coming forth from the present moment. Well, Lynn Rivers is a coach and a mentor and she uses NLP, which is Neuro Linguistic Programming, to help people. She uses hypnosis, and uh, she's able to connect directly with the subconscious mind to make relatively quick and dependable shifts in the neurological system. And she's able to relate so closely with people on a wide range of traumatic events. And she's helped herself to overcome some real challenges in her own life, including abandonment and and neglect and sexuality issues and things like that. And so we're going to talk about so many of these different topics. And I know one of the topics that is mentioned is is dealing and growing through an experience of having an alcoholic parent. So that's that's the case with you. Is it, Lynn, you have an alcoholic parent? I did, yes. Um, the majority of my family has died at this point. I lost the majority of them before I turned 15. Um, but I did have an alcoholic father from the time I was born through the time that he died. He was an alcoholic. And so tell me about that. How do you, how do you deal with that in your own life? And how do you help other people who have addictions? You know, I think addictions is, is an internal voice that's saying something is off in your life. It's, it's not necessarily a neurological pattern per se. It's something that we, we tend to ignore. We have a voice that's telling us, hey, something's not right, but we're so trained to ignore the little sirens that are going off and saying, hey, like pay attention to me. And so we drown everything out. And that's a mindfulness practice to me is what is this voice trying to say? You know, and if I am pushing myself into these things to numb my existence and to ignore what's actually going on. It's not necessarily an addiction. It's a, it's a process to look at as, as what am I missing and what do I really need to look at in my life? Right. And do you work with a lot of people who have addictions of various kinds? I have. Yes. I've alcohol is typically the number one. I mean, it's the number one drug in the world and I have 
worked through it with a lot of people and it, it's really hard for people to turn away from it. It's one of those stuff substances where it does numb us. And so it's an easy go-to and yeah, it's one of my biggest, <laughs> biggest things to work with, with people. Well, it's glorified so much in the mainstream, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And that's one of the things I notice. I notice Ellen laughs a lot about you know, having a drink or, you know, she, she laughs a lot about, and I, I love Ellen. I think she's really funny, but I think that she kind of glorifies the use of alcohol. And I think that's not a good thing. I completely agree. And that is why I feel we do not have enough role models in the mainstream media who are teaching kids what it means to actually live an authentic existence. You know, we, we push drugs and cigarettes and everything. It's still in the mainstream media, even though we've become awakened as a society, you know, we use that word so often. And yet we just have all of these people who spotlights on them and they, they talk about everything that they're doing outside instead of really reeling in the fact that we need to tap into who we are and what we're here to do and how we do that. It's not through alcohol. It's not through substance. Right. And, and so, yes, that does actually really get to me. And I don't even watch any of those people because right. of that reason. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I I don't watch television hardly at all. I haven't for a long time, but I do know that I've seen some clips and stuff and, mm -hmm. you know, I, I laugh at her jokes. I think she's very funny in a lot of ways, but uh, I think during this pandemic right now, I think there's a lot of glorification of alcohol too. I notice that a lot of people say, oh, well, I wouldn't be able to get through this without wine and all this stuff. And then people laugh yes. and, and, and I think more than ever, alcohol is being glorified. I mean, uh, I think that with uh, marijuana, people don't talk about it as much, even though it is a mainstream thing. It's not Absolutely. glorified in the same way that alcohol is, is it? No, it's not. And I mean, that is a big thing, especially I was just living in Boulder, Colorado before being here in California. So there's like the legalization of marijuana and, and it's still, it's one of the best ways for people to numb it, it numbs them. And so it is starting to become more mainstream. It's getting up there. It's, you know, it's more talked about because there are more places where it's legalized. And so it's getting there, but no, alcohol is still the number one go-to. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it, it makes me sad that it's such a go-to during this pandemic because my personal belief surrounding this and the intuitive guidance that I've gotten is this is on purpose. This is happening for a reason. And it's, we're, we're really trying to get people into a place of going inwards and really discovering who they are so they can show up in this world in a much more positive manner and who they are. And all I see are videos of people drinking wine and having all of these beer games. And, and it's just like, they're not taking this time to really find who they are. It's, it's just in a, another game of how much can I numb myself? How much can I put this off until it's over? And it's just, it's really, it's sad. So once we decide not to numb ourselves, whether it's with food or alcohol or, or social media, there are so many different ways to numb ourselves. What do yes. we do next if we decide not to numb ourselves? Be prepared to have an unfolding. You know, it's the, the scary thing about not numbing is that you're all of the truth is going to start coming up. You know, it's one of the first main things that people go through when they stop drinking is they realize that their friends are not actually friends. They're just drinking buddies. You know, they're people who they go out with to the bar, but when they're with those people and they're sober, 
they don't have a lot in common. And that's one of the first things that people go through is realizing like, wait a minute, I don't actually connect with these people unless I am drinking. And so there is this unfolding of your entire life and coming to your truth of who you are, who you genuinely connect with, what it is you want to connect on and all of these different levels that come up to the surface. And a lot of people are not ready for that. They're, they're terrified of finding out who they really are because then all of a sudden they have to reframe their entire life. The structure shifts and all of a sudden the relationships that they're in, they don't make any sense. The friendships, the job, everything starts coming to the surface to really be reviewed. And that is scary for a lot of people. You have to really be prepared to go through the transition it's, it's not just the numbing, it's everything in your life is going to be under review. Right. And can we sometimes numb ourselves using activities? I mean, busyness can be a way to numb ourselves. Isn't that true? 100%. Yes. Yeah. And what about climbing? <laughs> yes. I know that climbing <laughs> is a passion. Is that is that a way of numbing ourselves or is that a way of reaching who we really are? So for myself... I am not a, I don't have activities that I'm like, I have to do this, have to do this. Right now, the climbing gyms are closed. I'm not doing anything other than really relaxing. I work out maybe five, 10 minutes a day. You know, it's not something where I feel like it's an addiction to me. It's, oh, I'm not feeling good today. I'm not going to climb. Like I, I, tr I do my best as well to keep things contained and not become a, a substance to me. And so when I'm climbing, it becomes a, I love climbing because it, it's a, it's a form of meditation for me. When I'm on the wall, there's nothing more that I can think about other than climbing. And so it clears a space for me. And I believe that we have to clear space and release all of our thought processes in order to come to forms of clarity. And so when I'm on the wall, it's usually during a time when I'm like, okay, I have too much on my head. I'm overthinking things. I need to get myself out of this space. And so I climb. It is a physical and mental workout for me. But yes, climbing too for people can become an addiction. It comes to numbing. So it's all dependent on how you are mindful in your life, really, about everything that you're doing and is it becoming, is it in balance or are you overstepping one way or the other? And so for you, climbing is kind of a form of meditation. Do you have any other forms of meditation in your life? Doing absolutely nothing. And that is one of the biggest things that I teach people is the, it goes along that thing that you said, the being busy, that's a numbing. And I prescribe people to literally do absolutely nothing, to lay on the floor. That's my meditation. I lay on the floor in a silent, dark room. And I literally, I, I don't try to push my thoughts away. I acknowledge them. I witness them as they come by. And that for me is meditation. Meditation doesn't have to be you sitting up in posture and you, you know, listening to specific music. It's the act of literally doing nothing and not forcing yourself into certain thoughts and not certain, you know, pushing yourself into certain actions. I think the more comfortable you can be, the more clear you're going to be able to reach. You know, I know that you do NLP. Tell us from your perspective how you discovered it and what it does to help people, including yourself. So NLP is a technique that it's just about asking questions. 
So it's the way you ask questions and the way that you can elicit responses. So a lot of people, when they're asking their friends questions, they do it in a sense where it, it either comes from the person asking where it's almost advice versus if I ask you, oh, okay, Bruce, you, you like reading books. Tell me which ones are your favorites, right? And so it puts you in this thought process of thinking about, okay, which ones are my favorite books? Versus if someone says, oh, do you like reading XYZ and gives you specifics, it forces you to actually think in their context and it, it puts it in a box, right? So it's not actually coming from you. It's coming from a context of what they want you to say. And so it's just transforming the, the question into a way where it accesses their brain waves and actually gets into their subconscious and is able to dictate what they're actually really wanting to say versus what they feel they should say. And how long did it take you to learn this process? Actually, I've been using it the majority of my life and I didn't realize it until I started actually taking courses. And I think probably when I was about 16, 17 years old, I remember someone having a conversation with me and I just remember them asking me certain things and being like, you're asking me in a way where you're trying to get me to respond the way you want me to respond. Maybe you should ask in a different context. And from that point on, I was very specific with, with the way I talk to people and eliciting their genuine response versus what they needed to hear. So it started at 16 and a couple of years ago when I actually went through an NLP course, I learned like, this is what I've been using the majority of my life. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so cool. So tell us about a client that you've worked with that you've taken them from a dark place to a much brighter place. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Wow. There's so many. Um, it's interesting because the one that stands out to me is a woman who was just really unhappy with life. She was just miserable and she consistently talked about the misery, like everything sucks. Nothing's going my way. I don't have money. Nobody wants to date me. Just really negative self-talk. And there is a thing about me that people who are supposed to find me <laughs> My energy on a human design level is meant to stimulate and activate certain aspects of their charts that create prosperity and create success in some forms. So when she came to me, things already started changing for her just by being in my field. But then she actually started listening to the way that I was talking to her and I would reframe everything that she said every time she was sitting there talking about something that wasn't going right. I would reframe it and have her repeat it. And so she could get the language down as to like, okay, so when I'm feeling negative about this, let me put it in a positive context of things that are going right. So when she would talk about, I don't have money, I would be like, you have money and you can use it for the things that are necess like necessary for you at this moment. And she'd be like, oh yeah, I do. I, I can actually take care of my needs. You're right. That is true. And so then she would find those positive aspects and you start using those within two weeks she made ten thousand dollars off of like random things that were coming in because she started reframing and she <laughs> I remember her walking up to me and be like I know this is something that you did for me I don't know how I don't know what but I just have to thank you and her life just started taking off I mean she was started 
she started getting opportunities left and right. She started going into a business that she really liked. She met somebody, I want to say a month and a half later, where she hadn't been in a relationship for many years. And it was just all about being present with her and showing her hidden aspects of her subconscious that she wasn't tapping into. She was so lost in the, the mental world that she couldn't, she couldn't see where she was. Fascinating. That is very fascinating. Now, have you had a near-death experience, Lynn? I've had multiple. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, when I was one in three, I, I don't remember those, but I, I was in the hospital with pneumonia. And a thing that started me off with a lot of fear in life was the fact that I was in the hospital. I was in an incubator. They had me tied down, IVs in my arms. And my parents were so afraid that the way they said, I love you, came out in fear. Like, I love you. I don't want you to die, <laughs> you know, in that tone. And as a child, that's where we start imprinting the way that words are, are given and how we receive them. And so I took the word love as something terrible. And so I went through my entire childhood, never saying I love you. When people would tell me it, I had the most like anxiety in my body. I can still remember it as a child. And then as I got older, I started work as I was working through that. I ended up at a point in my life where I was finally at a really solid, solid place. I was about 28 years old. I understood my trauma and what I had gone through and a bunch of loss. And I finally met somebody who I wanted to be with for the first time, like actually wanted to be with. It wasn't about fixing people. <laughs> and about eight months into our relationship, I started having a lot of health issues and I couldn't figure out what was going on. But at the same time, my partner <laughs> that I had just met she started going through stuff too and ended up being diagnosed with colon cancer. While she was going through that, I decided it was time to understand what was going on. And turns out that my organs were failing. My liver was failing. It backed up into my pancreas, my gallbladder. I had gallstones that backed into my pancreas and my body was just shutting down. And I was like, okay, this isn't good. <laughs> And so she ended up moving away to go back to Oregon to be with her family because I couldn't take care of her. And I was forced to take care of myself. Like it was all on me. I was alone. And I was like, okay, I'm going to work through this. I got to the point where I was crawling on the floor. I was dragging myself to go get a glass of water. It took me about 10 minutes to get five feet. I kept passing out along the way. And I managed to make it back to my bed and I was laying there. And all of a sudden, I had absolutely no worry in the world. Everything that I had been concerned with about dying suddenly went out the window. My dogs, I was terrified, like, what would happen to my dogs if I die and nobody knows? But all of a sudden, I was just like, oh, no, it's okay. They'll, they're going to be taken care of. Someone's going to find them. It's, it's going to be okay. I was just such at this level of peace. And I was laying there, and I could barely feel the breath in my body. And all of the pain that I was experiencing was just like gone. It was just magical. It's the most peaceful feeling I could ever describe. And I remember being like, okay, I'm ready to go. And I could feel the veil was so thin. It was just so clear and so peaceful. And all of a sudden I had two Native American spirit guides come through to me <laughs> and they told me what I needed to do. And I was like, okay. 
and all of a sudden my eyes open. I'm awake. I'm looking around the room thinking like, I didn't leave. I'm here. And they told me something and it was very specific. And I actually had the ability to get out of bed all of a sudden. Like it was like, I can move my body. And I went into the bathroom and I started everything that they told me to do. And it was in a matter of hours after I had done this, that I felt my body like coming back to life. It was like the sense of like vitality and I was still in pain. I could feel the pain come back, but everything just kind of started working. And months later, I managed to get back to a place where I was healthy. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's an amazing story. And so you've probably helped other people who have had near death experiences as well. You know, I don't run into a lot of people who have had near death experiences. And it's something that I'd like to do. I I really like working with people who have experienced that, but it's, it's not often that you come across it. So you do work with a lot of people that have relationship challenges. Is that true? Yes, it is true. And how do you get to the bottom of that? How do you figure out what is really causing the problem and how they can, how they can improve the situation? There's multiple things. I think a lot of relationships the way that I see relationships are they teach us to grow. They are there for our personal growth. Everyone that we encounter, regardless of if it's platonic or romantic, they are there to teach us. And we become a better person by each person. Every time that we get into a new relationship, it is a new version of ourselves and we continue growing with each person. They all serve us. The release is beautiful too. There's there's a lot of pain that people experience when they go through breakups without seeing that they were there to serve a purpose, they did, and now it's time to move forward. And so when I'm working with a person who is in a challenging relationship, my questions are always about them. It's not about the relationship, it's about who they are, where they are, who they, how they interact with themselves, because we, we project a lot of our past pain and our emotions onto others and we, we create dysfunction a lot of times because it is in our nature. It's we, our parents created this distress, right? As children. And so we carry that into adulthood. And a lot of the time, the problems that we're having is not with our partner, it's with our past and we haven't healed our past. And so it it all depends on what a person's going through. And there's also the other aspect of the human design. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but human design is our personal design. And I do human design readings to find out who you are as a person and who you're supposed to show up as as a person. And depending on our charts, we could be with somebody who is preventing us from moving forward energetically because of the way that our charts correlate. And so there are so many different aspects that I... I come from with that, but more than anything, it's getting a person to tap into themselves to find out who they are and what they expect from themselves before the relationship. That is super, super interesting. We can be with a partner that is actually holding us back. 100%. And and the fact is that 
like we talked earlier about victimhood. Uh, I know I'm a person who always wants to be aware of, oh, am I thinking like a victim? Oh, am I acting like a victim? I don't want that. I don't want that. No way. I don't want that. And so I don't want to think about things that might fit that description. You know, I wouldn't want to think, oh, my partner's holding me back because I would think that's just me being a victim. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And and by the fact that you can be aware of that, that you have that thought process is beautiful because a lot of people don't think that far. They don't get to that space. They just automatically shut it down and dismiss it. So by the fact that you can actually have that thought process is amazing. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, I think that's pretty fascinating that that you help people with that the way you do. Uh, I want to move forward and ask you a question about bullying because I've worked in the field of bullying prevention for a long time. Do you have a story either about yourself or someone where bullying was such an issue and maybe mindfulness would have prevented it or changed the outcome? You know, I think to throw mindfulness into it, it's a little bit difficult because as a child, it's hard to understand the concept of mindfulness. Yes. You know, I, I think that children are sometimes the most mindful and also the most mindless. <laughs> like we're, yeah. you know, we're all over the place. And so a lot of bullying happens during childhood, teenage years. And so it's hard to throw the concept of mindfulness on it. But I will say that I have been bullied the majority of my life because I am a very powerful person and people don't like that. If it comes to career and you have the chance, like anyone thinks that you're about to overstep them or take a position that they wanted, you're suddenly the target. And in school, I was a big target. And as a child, I was a major tomboy and I would kick all of the guys' butts in football and hockey and basketball. And, and I was bullied a lot for that. And a lot of it still registers in my head. I was just thinking about it the other day, how much it hurt, like how much it hurt. And at the same time, the compassion that we were children, like they, we do things as children, like I said, that's completely mindless. We don't have the ability to, to register that level yet. And so it's, it's one of those things where could we teach children to be more mindful? Yes, but it's also something that we have to remember that they are just children and their brains operate differently. Right. Yeah, that all makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, it's 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 just very interesting how um, even as adults, there's a tremendous amount of bullying that goes on in the workplace or or between friends or even between family members, you know, there's all yes. kinds of it. And it's, and it's such a shame, but the first step is really identifying it and, and confronting it, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. And I also think it's important to remember that bullying can also entail emotional abuse. Like it's, you know, I, I had stopped talking to my father a couple of years before he died because he was emotionally abusive, like the, his vocal tendencies were emotionally abusive and that is bullying. And I think a lot of people, it would benefit them to see that, that just because they're a family member doesn't mean that they have the right to be bullied. So Lynn, when you uh, help people with your coaching, is most of it virtual? Is most of it over something like Zoom or Skype or something yes. like that? Yes, it's typically done over Zoom. Right, yeah. So, so can, when you're in the presence of people, 
I know because you're an intuitive. Does that mean you can, do you feel more connected or can you feel just as connected with someone on a, on a virtual platform? There is a difference. I will say that there's a difference. The second I meet someone in person, I just know everything about them. Like it's, <laughs> um, it has, like I said, it has its advantages and disadvantages. Um, over the computer, I can definitely still pick up on people's emotions. It's, it's a, it's a reading of just how they're holding themselves and what's coming forth. And the other day I actually had a woman in tears within three minutes of our conversation because I was like, okay, this is what I'm reading. <laughs> this is, this is what's coming up for me. And she was just shocked. She was like, wow, I don't know how you knew this about me, but you know, and so yes, it does still happen, but I do still feel this slight difference when I am in person. Right. Right. It's fascinating. Yeah. And so what age were you when you knew that your life's work would be helping people through these gifts? I tried to fight it. I honestly tried to fight it. I thought that I was going to be doing something else. I first went to college for graphic design and then stepped into something else. And I just kept meeting these psychics who were like, you know, you have this gift. And I'm like, nope, nope, I don't want to, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> and then all of these events just kept happening to me getting sick and then my partner dying and then my dad dying then me getting sick again. And I'm like, okay, I hear it. The last time that I was sick and I was in the hospital, I had a ruptured appendix. It had, I had peritonitis. I was in there for a while and I was laying in the bed and I was like, okay, I hear you. Like <laughs> I can't, I chose to stay here. So I want to serve my purpose. And then all of a sudden it was just like, okay, doors open. Like it's time to just step into this and stop hiding. It's yeah. So. And how long ago was that when you stopped hiding? You know, that's a funny question because I was always going to school for something holistic. Like first it was holistic nutrition when I was 18, then yoga therapy, then massage when I was 28 and all of these things just kind of culminated, right? It was just like a large process. It was stepping stones. And when I turned, actually it was my 29th birthday. I was just like, okay, I'm going to do coaching. I'm going to step into it. And so it's been about five years now. Is it difficult to find clients? No, <laughs> no. People find you? People find me. And the one thing about me is I don't market. I'm not like a heavy marketer. I, I don't throw big Facebook ads out there. I don't actually even have a Facebook. Um, I don't post a lot about it on Instagram. It's just kind of little pieces here and there. But I, I know that the people who are supposed to find me are going to find me. Uh, that's very interesting. I'm sure there are a lot of very grateful people that they found you. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's, it's honestly really beautiful. And I'm thankful for being able to help people this way. So tell us about gratitude in your life. Is that a major part of your life? I actually had a gratitude journal that I wrote in every single night for three years. And it was just a journal specific about what I am thankful for. And I stopped doing that because I realized it it was just becoming an obsession and something that I felt I had to do. And so now I just give thanks to anything that I see, like in the moment, like the tree outside my window and how it's blooming fruit. Like I'm grateful for that. And I do give thanks to every single meal that I eat. I you know, say a prayer. And I'm thankful for every person who was in, involved in that process. Because when you think about even just one blueberry and how many people were involved in that blueberry that you're eating, 
it's just amazing. Right. And so I do, I give thanks to everything that I eat and just wherever I see fit. Well, I'm certainly grateful to have met you because uh, you're a fascinating person. And it's just very interesting to learn about your journey and how you've helped people and how you continue to help people. So this is great. Yeah. So as we move forward, Lynn, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. Okay. And so just 30 second answers are fine. The first one is this. Who is one person who has influenced mindfulness for you in your life? Myself. I, there's not anyone else who taught me mindfulness, unfortunately. Well, good for you that you were able to identify that and just know that it was what you needed to do. That's fantastic. I, I didn't have a choice. <laughs> right. And in over yeah. uh, 540 interviews, nobody has ever said that before. So that's, that's fascinating. Interesting. Yeah. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? It's made me very thankful and appreciative of every single emotion that I have. Every emotion is on purpose and it's taught me to not ignore them and not push them away. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness. It, it's a, a mindfulness practice of making sure that I'm in my body, that I'm using my breath. And if you see that I take deep breaths often to really just be present, it's that, it's that reminder that I am here and breathe. Just simply breathing just allows you to stay present. And if you could recommend a book somehow related to mindfulness, what would that be? I don't have a book in mind that that would, I don't, yeah, I haven't read a lot of self-help books because I've always been very internal. So sure, I don't have a book recommendation. <laughs> no problem. And are there any apps at all? That, no, no, I don't use apps. <laughs> and you don't encourage apps with the people you work with, with your clients? I don't. I'm more about taking them internal and finding their own voice, their own internal voice. Right, right. Well, I think it's it's fascinating what you do, and I think your story is incredibly fascinating as well. How can we connect with you? How can we find you? How can we reach out to you? So you can actually find my website at www.lynnrivers.com, and that's L-I-N-N-Rivers.com. And I'm also on Instagram under Lynn Rivers, and it's just my personal account. It's not a lot of work-related stuff. It's just me and my journey. And I actually also have a documentary coming out soon that's going to be in film festivals across the nation. And that is going to be, that is titled Victim to Victor. Very cool. <laughs> and so that'll be one good way too. And how long is the documentary? It's a short documentary. It's going to be about 15 to 20 minutes. It's just going to be a short clip of how to get from one point to the next, from trauma to thriving. Victim to Victor. Victim to victim. And will it be available on your website? After, once once all the film festivals are done, it will be available, yes. Right, right. Yeah, I wondered. Well, that's that's pretty incredible. So did you, how much of that did you do? You did the, the directing, you did the, did you shoot the whole thing? Did you? No. Tell us about it. No, I have a producer, director, his name is Micah Groenvelt, and he is the one putting it all together. He's still back in Colorado. I'm here in Hollywood. And he is wrapping up on it and is actually going to have the first first viewing done for me in about two weeks. So I'm really excited. I have no idea what's going on. I'm, I was just about, I was behind the camera, or sorry, in front of the camera, mm -hmm. and did what I needed to do. Now he's taking over. So well, I'm excited for you. That's, that's really great. 
Thank you. Yeah. yeah, it's super exciting. I'm excited to see what he does with it. Well, Lynn, thanks so much for being on the show. LynnRivers.com, L-I-N-N, LynnRivers.com. Check it out, Mindful Tribe. And uh, I think that uh, you've got so much to learn from Lynn. So thanks so much, <laughs> Lynn, for being on the show. Thank you so much. It's nice being here. Yeah, bye now. Thank you. Bye. Mindful Tribe, I hope you enjoyed today's interview. If you did, please tell your friends about the show. Every person who subscribes and listens helps our show. So in the meantime, take what you heard today and reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode 